words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Peter was writing to Christians scattered throughout the world, dispersed in all kinds of different places uh, and in all kinds of different settings. Uh, he, in fact, uses the word uh, diaspora, or, uh, which is a term that was used for the Old Testament people of God. The Jews had been conquered by the Babylonians and the uh, Assyrians and they had, because of that uh, being conquered, they'd been scattered throughout the world, scattered throughout uh, that region and Peter takes that term and he says, you guys, you Christians, are scattered uh, throughout the world. But even just thinking about what God had already done before Jesus through that scattering of the Jews uh, throughout uh, the world at that time uh, is really interesting to see. So if you've got your Bible open to Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 verse 5, so this is the day of Pentecost and a whole lot of people, all these Jews had come from all these different places uh, to Jerusalem and it says there in chapter 2 verse 5, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Well, where were they from? Go down a few verses to verse 9. Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. They all heard them in their own language. So, so, so here they are, these Jews, these, these people of God, God-fearing people who'd been scattered throughout the world and not just uh, uh, ethnic Jews but, but converts to Judaism as well. So by this scattering throughout the world, the message of God and of the promised Messiah had been taken to the, the regions surrounding Israel. Then in uh, Acts chapter 15... Uh, in verse 21, James is speaking to, uh, to the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15, verse 21. And, uh, and he says there in verse 21, For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what, what James is saying is, that not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but around the world from the earliest times the word of God had been preached and proclaimed and read in places uh, all over the world. Uh, here is the miracle, if you like, of God's people in the Old Testament having been scattered all over the globe. What was the miracle? The miracle was this, that the message of God had gone into the world from the earliest times. And from the day of uh, Pentecost on, we see that same reality, not just for the Old Testament people of God, but for the, the new community of people uh, gathered around Jesus. Turn to Acts chapter 4, to Acts, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 8, I should say. Stephen uh, has just given his great speech, he's just been stoned and in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. 
on that, day, uh, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Then verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And if you turn over uh, a few pages to chapter 11, to chapter 11 verse 19, Luke writes, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution, the same persecution in connection with Stephen, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. In other words, what's the picture? The picture is this astonishing reality that the scattering of God's people, the dispersion of God's people, actually leads to the gathering of God's people. These people being scattered around the globe in all these different settings and all these different situations has actually led to people, to people hearing the message of the gospel, believing and being gathered into God's church. By being uh, scattered, the church builds the church. By being uh, scattered throughout the world, God's people take the gospel to all different countries, to all different kinds of societies. They take the gospel to schools, to building sites, to sports clubs, to bands, to office buildings, to shopping centres, to skate parks, to jails, uh, to footy clubs, to craft groups, to community gardens and to all kinds of different places throughout the world. You name it, the Gospel goes there not because someone's organised an activity and said, let's go there and do this mission but because God's people are there and because God's people are diverse and God has placed them in all kinds of different places. In fact, the great diversity of people in the church, that thing which makes it hard for the church to to connect to each other because the only thing, the only interest really that we have in common is the gospel, the great diversity that we have actually makes us a great missionary force because it takes us into all kinds of different areas of society. But the scattering of uh, God's church uh, is also uh, useful to understand as well because it reminds us that the growth of the church is about more than just the growth of our church. When I uh, was living in Olveston and ministering in Olveston, I realised that if you wanted to go to university, you had to leave town. So a lot of people get to the age of Uh, of 18 or whatever and they uh, go off to university which means that for years you you spend years ministering to these people and you think won't it be great when they they grow up and they can contribute back to the church but they go off to ministry And, and, and that discourages a lot of people. But it suddenly struck me that actually that's because we so often think about our own church, isn't it? Rather than the church at large. But in in terms of God scattering his people throughout the world, that's exactly what we ought to expect, isn't it? That we train up people in our communities 
and then they get scattered throughout the world and minister in the settings that they find themselves. So often we become focused on the growth of our church rather than the growth of God's church throughout the world. So the Church of God not only gathers together to be equipped by the Gospel to love God and the church and our neighbour and to make disciples, the Church of God is also scattered throughout the world living out the Gospel of Jesus Christ and bearing witness to Jesus wherever they are. So how does that happen? I guess that's the next question to ask. How is God building his church uh, by the church being scattered? Well, the rest of 1 Peter gives us some outlines of how that happens. So if you turn to uh, the book of, or the letter of 1 Peter, which is almost right at the end of the New Testament, only a little bit before Revelation, So remember, at the beginning of this letter, Peter has addressed this this letter, the church scattered throughout the world. Well, how is this church scattered throughout the world to minister the gospel? Well, have a look at chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is... How are these people to minister the gospel scattered where they are? They are to live holy lives serving God and as they do that they are to declare the praises of God. He goes on then in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is, as strangers in the world, the church is to live out the gospel of righteousness through Jesus Christ. They are to live their lives among the pagans, as Peter says, among the people who don't believe in God. They are to live their lives scattered throughout the world, living in such a way that it bears witness to the greatness and to the glory of God. How do they do that? Well, we kind of looked at the basic idea a few weeks ago, didn't we? We're to do that by loving our neighbour. That's how we live lives which honour God. We love God and love our neighbour. The only way to love your neighbour is to be living among them in the first place. But Peter gives us some more concrete examples as well. So in 2.13 he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. How are they to live lives which honour God and promote the gospel. Here's the first way, scrupulous obedience to governments and councils and the police and and obedience to frustrating regulations. In doing that, they witness to the freedom which they have in Christ. That is, not our freedom to do whatever we want, but our freedom to obey God rather than to be slaves uh, to sin and slaves to righteousness. Uh, Or in 2.18, how are they to live out the gospel in the world? Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. 
How do they live out their lives? Well, their lives in their workplace are to betray the gospel. Uh, employees, uh, slaves, as they were called in those days, were to, when they suffered, when they were shortchanged by their, by their masters, they were to persevere in that. Even though they were being diddled, they were to persevere in that and in that way reflect the sufferings of Christ. In 3.1, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Or 3.7, husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. As Paul says uh, in Ephesians, how husbands and wives live together ought to reflect the gospel. Husbands ought to give themselves up for their wives as Christ gave himself up for the church. That is, they ought to exercise costly love. And wives ought to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. That is, they ought to model obedience and trust in Christ. You see, the point of all this, the point of what Peter is saying is not simply to be moral or good. That's not the point. That's not the witness. That's bound up with it. But rather the point is to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are activities anchored in the gospel. Uh, That is, we live them out, as Peter says in in 2 verse 4, as we come to Jesus. Or in 2.2, as we crave spiritual milk. Or in 2.10, as we live them out as people who have received mercy. That is, we live out these lives because of the gospel, because of the power of the gospel. These aren't just moral uh, criteria lived out in a vacuum, but they're lived out of the trust and love for God through Jesus Christ. But they also say something about the gospel whether it's our freedom in Christ, whether it's the sufferings of Christ, whether it's the love of Christ or our obedience to Christ, how we live ought to say something about the nature of the gospel. And here's the hope in 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. The hope uh, is in all this uh, pursuing Christ and living out the gospel, the hope is that that will win us an opportunity to speak about the gospel, to be able to tell people who Jesus is and what he has done. There must be words on top of our actions. Paul says uh, in Romans 10, he asks, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How How can they believe Jesus if they haven't heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So there must be words, there must be words about Jesus, they must know who he is and what he's done. But the hope is that as we live lives flowing out of the gospel, that our love, the love of Christ which we share with the world, will win us a hearing for that message. That doesn't mean that we ought to simply sit and wait for those opportunities. In Colossians, Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. 
Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That is, what were the Colossians to do? They were to pray for Paul and his ministry and they were to be wise in their own lives and always speak words full of grace and seasoned with the gospel. They were to shape every word and every conversation by the grace of God and the mercy of God, the kindness of God and the truth of who Jesus is. Sometimes uh, that means that we need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves, like Esther. We don't always get the opportunity to be as forthright as we might like to be. But it means that every conversation is on the edge of being a gospel conversation and the grace of God in our lives just flows out because we're so full of the grace of God and we're so used to talking about it. So being scattered throughout the world, we live out the power of the gospel and through that we win opportunities to speak the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And we shape every conversation into a conversation saturated by the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. And in doing that, God gathers his church through his church being scattered throughout the world. But the scattered uh, church is not only built up by the addition of new members. It's not only built up uh, through evangelism, if you like. You see, I think the mistake that we often make when thinking about these kinds of things is to think that how it works is that on Sunday we, we gather to build up each other in the faith, so we gather to sort of to build up the church, to, to, to train, and then, and then we leave and we do evangelism. But actually, that's not true. That's not how the Bible presents us. When we leave our gatherings, when we leave church we still ought to be building up the body of Christ. We still ought to be building up the existing members of the church as well. One of the things that you notice as you read through the letters in the New Testament is how the instructions to the church often bleed into instructions to husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. We saw that already in in 1 Peter but you see it in other places as well. So in Colossians chapter 3 you see it. Paul is addressing the church and all of a sudden he starts speaking about families and, and, and workers. Or in Ephesians 4, Ephesians uh, is the book, if you like, in the New Testament about the church and what it is. Uh, and in the first three chapters Paul talks about the theology of the church, what the church is, it's the people reconciled to God through the death of Christ, it's the people, the new humanity joined and being built into the house of God through the Holy Spirit. Paul says all that, he gives his theology of the church and then he starts applying uh, the truth of the gospel to the church. He goes on to talk about how the church ought to treat each other. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, how does that work out in the church? Astonishingly, that works out through husbands loving their wives and parents loving their children and children submitting to their parents and masters and slaves working together in harmony. That is how the church works together, works out not just for a few hours a week in gatherings, but it works out all the time in all our lives in every facet. 
You see, so much of the New Testament, so much of the Bible really, is not addressed at what to do for an hour a week on Sunday. It's addressed at what we do where we spend our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in the many places that we find ourselves. That makes a lot of sense, really, doesn't it? It'd be a bit silly if the Bible is all about what to do in church. What God is saying is that how you live in all those multiple relationships that you have, how you live in those affects the church. How you live in those relationships either builds the church or it destroys the church. If you live out the gospel in those relationships, you will build the church of Christ. Think about it for a minute. If you're married, uh, one of the people that you spend the most time with, hopefully one of the people you spend the most time with, is going to be your husband or your wife. Uh, What an amazing ministry opportunity. Uh, You don't need to work hard to find a time to meet up. Uh, It happens every day. You're with each other all the time. The way that you live around them can model to them the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life of Christ. Your words to them can build them up in the faith or your words to them can tear them down and make them ineffective in ministry. You can train your husband or your wife for ministry in the church and in the world by how you live every day. If you're a husband learning to love your wife as Christ loved the church, equips you for ministry in the church, doesn't it? Because it teaches you how to love the church. Uh, As wives submit to their husbands, they learn to submit to Christ and their example teaches their husbands how to submit to Christ and their children how to submit to Christ and the church how to submit to Christ. The same goes for parents and children. Uh, If you're a child uh, or if you're a teenager or if you still have living parents, which is probably a fair proportion of us, how you live in that relationship can train the church, can build the church. Uh, As you obey your parents and as that costs you to listen to somebody else rather than to do what you want to do, as you use your freedom to submit and to honour, you model that same attitude to others. You model to your own parents how to submit to Christ and how to love him. You model to people your own age how to submit to Christ and you model to people your own age how to submit to your parents as well. You might not be appointed to lead any group. You might not be given any kind of special ministry uh, responsibilities. But as you live and as you speak, as you pursue these relationships in the Gospel, you build the church and you train others to live out the Gospel in their own lives. 
And the same could be said not just for these relationships but for the relationships between employers and employees and we can think even more broadly, can't we? Wherever you find yourself, this idea works out. If you're a teacher in a school, what a ministry opportunity to teach children. Uh, you know, you might do parent help one day a week. What a ministry opportunity. You might do social work. You might meet people. What a, what a ministry opportunity to show the love of Christ, to train people to submit to love, to love in a costly way, to speak words about Christ. You see, we don't just build the church for a few hours a week. We ought to be building the church every moment of our lives by how we live and by what we say. The question that we're so often tempted to ask, and it's a good question, the tempted we're so often tempted to ask is, what new ministry can I do? Is that right? We think to ourselves, I'm not engaged enough in ministry. I think, what new ministry can I do? I mean, that sometimes is a good question, but the better question to start by asking is, what am I already doing and how can I turn that into a ministry? Where am I living? Who am I engaging with? And how can I transform that into being a ministry which builds the church of God? In doing all these things, in living well out of the gospel, we fulfil the task of the church in all the different places that God has put us. We love God, we love the church, we love our neighbour and we make disciples and train them to obey Christ. Before we go on, I think it's worth just referring back to uh, the, the message that we heard on the day that uh, Graham and Linda left. That is, if you pursue this gospel ministry, you ought to expect that it will nearly kill you. If you really live out what the Bible is saying about uh, how to live in these relationships and every day and to build the church and every day, expect it to be a cross and resurrection shaped ministry. Expect it to follow the shape of Jesus' ministry. It will nearly kill you. It will be perplexing, it will be difficult, it will be distressing, but through your hardship, others will find life. So the way that we live as Christians scattered in the world builds the church by bringing in new disciples that builds the church by training others in the church. But if one of the key ways that the church operates uh, is by scattering and loving God and our neighbour where we are. Another crucial ministry or aspect, if you like, of the scattering of the church is appointing and sending our people in evangelistic ministry. As you read through uh, the New Testament, you can't avoid the fact that the church not only calls on its people to scatter and to minister, but it also uh, appoints and sends specially chosen people. So in Acts 13, for example, Paul and Barnabas are set aside for mission work by the leadership of the church. Uh, In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas again are sent uh, with Judas and Silas to take the decision of the Jerusalem Council. Uh, As you read through Paul's letters, you find him constantly talking about his own ministry and, and urging the churches to support his ministry or to support somebody else in their ministry. In 1 Corinthians, he urges the churches to send and support Timothy and Philippians 4... Uh, We hear about how the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus to help Paul in his ministry. In Colossians 4, we hear about Paul sending Tychicus and Onesimus to the Colossians and how the Colossians had sent Epaphras to Paul. 
In other words, on and on and on, you hear about this ministry work that these special workers are carrying on throughout the world. The conclusion that we have to draw from this, I think, is that appointing and sending people specifically into evangelistic ministry is an important task of the church. Now that might seem obvious at one level, but at another level it's actually something that I think we tend to struggle with. Uh, For some reason at some point along the line the idea has crept into churches that actually doing that is dangerous. so people talk about the danger of people of paying people to do our evangelism for us. Um, but, but you get the impression from Paul's ministry that actually that's exactly what he wanted them to do. Actually so much of his letters are about that, that he wanted them to pay for him to do ministry. The New Testament never draws a wedge between sending and supporting people in radical evangelistic mission into the world, never draws a wedge between that, and the people of God being engaged in mission and ministry throughout the entire compass of their lives. It never draws a wedge. It always holds the two side by side as vital components necessary to the ministry of the church. Paul Levis says, Be careful about how much you support my ministry. Don't think about my ministry too much in case you forget that you have a ministry of your own. Paul never says that. Actually, quite the opposite. Almost all of Paul's letters are about his own ministry and he almost never says, and you should go and do the same thing. And this is how your ministry will look and this is what you will do. Paul's ministry is an example to them and a catalyst for them to be engaged in their own ministry. One of the things which is deeply encouraged, I think, about our, encouraging about our own church uh, is that we're ascending church. That's an amazing miracle of God, really, that so many people uh, have been sent or are in the process of being sent or thinking about going into mission and ministry. Graham and Linda are the obvious examples. We've got Ben as well doing his work uh, in Kings Meadows. I think of people in the pipeline like Quentin and um, Julian at the RTC. And there's lots of others. And we ought to be immensely thankful for that, that we can partner in the gospel like that. And that's what we ought to be doing, sending people into that kind of mission work. And we ought not to be afraid, I don't think, of speaking too much about it or hearing too much about it for fear that we might think that they're doing it for us and we don't have to do anything. Now Paul says that hearing, seems to think that hearing about his gospel enterprises will actually encourage other people to be involved in the situations where where they find themselves. So we've seen uh, that In God's wisdom, the church scatters to take the message of the gospel with us into the world and we've seen that the church scatters in that it deliberately sets aside and sends people into evangelistic ministry. And I guess the last thing, just to reflect on very briefly, is how those two elements then of gathering and scattering relate. I mean, why not 
you know, if we can carry on ministry and train people in, for ministry and, and make disciples by being scattered throughout the world, why bother ever getting together? What's the point of gathering? Well, we looked at that last week, I guess, and the point is not to forget what we learned last time, but the point of gathering is to equip God's people to equip God's church for works of service. The point of gathering is to train and to be trained in the gospel and to be trained in love. It's to be renewed by hearing God's word. It's to be encouraged amid the discouragements of ministry. It's to be brought to maturity in the faith. It's to be brought to repentance for sins which mar our lives and which mar our ministries which God has given us. It's to be refocused on the grace and the glory and the greatness of God. It's to be retrained to honour God. It's to pray for each other in our ministries and in our pursuit of Christ and in our work in the world. You see, as we go out, we forget. We get caught up in these ministries and we get so focused on what we have to do and what we're doing for God that we forget. And we need to come back together and we need to be reminded and we need to be brought to repentance. And we need to be told to trust God. The point of gathering is so that when we scatter, when we go out into the world, when we go about the task that God's given us, the point is that we might be wise for salvation through the scriptures and thoroughly equipped for every good work by the Bible. What does the church do? The church loves God. The church loves the church. The church loves our neighbour and it makes disciples. It does that by gathering to be built up in the faith, to be strengthened to praise God and to pray and it does that by scattering throughout the whole world and taking with it the message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the church of Jesus Christ which you're gathering throughout the whole world. Thank you that already in the days of the apostles on that first Pentecost you gathered people from many nations and many places. You filled them with your spirit and you scattered them throughout the world. Lord, thank you that you've gathered us here together in Launceston. Thank you that you've filled us with the spirit and thank you that you scatter us throughout this town in many different places and Lord, that you're even scattering us throughout the world as well. Father, we ask that as we do that, that we would trust you, that you've given us the gifts that we need to minister in the place where we are. Lord, help us to make the sacrifices every day that you call us to make, to do our ministry well, to serve our husband or our wife, our parents or our children our employers or our employees. Lord, grant us 
everything that we need to do that. Father, forgive us for the sins which mar our lives and our ministries. Lord, help us to turn away from them and to pursue faith and love and righteousness. Lord, we pray that as you have gathered us here as your people, we pray that as we go, that you would make us an effective missionary force by your power and your greatness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.